Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. In our recent two-parter on Harriet Tubman, we talked a little bit about the Underground Railroad and its northern terminus in British North America, which would eventually become Canada. And we talked a little bit about how Harriet Tubman herself and the people that she guided there had kind of a rough time when they got there, basically because they were starting over from scratch, having just escaped from bondage. But that is really only one aspect of the hardships that escaped persons faced in Canada. And after those episodes came out, we got a wonderful email from listener Derek, which we are going to read at the end of this episode. And in it, He suggested today's subject for the show. So today we are going to talk about Marianne Shad Carey, who was a black Canadian American who was the first black woman in North America to publish and edit a newspaper, as well as the second black woman in the United States to become an attorney. And aside from that, she was also a teacher and a ceaseless advocate against slavery and for better lives for free black people, as well as for women's rights. Uh, and I had never heard of her before getting Derek's letter. Me either. So hooray. And Mary Ann Shad Carey, born Mary Ann Shad, had a family history that tied to multiple previous podcast subjects. Her great-grandfather, Hans Shad, which is spelled a little bit differently, it's S-C-H-A-D instead of S-H-A-D-D, uh, was a Hessian soldier. Her great-grandmother, Elizabeth, was one of two black women who cared for him when he was injured near Philadelphia in 1755. Elizabeth and Hans married in January of 1756. Roughly 20 years later, they and their children moved across the state line into Delaware, which, although they were still all free, was a slave state. Over the next couple of generations, Shad, spelled S-C-H-A-D, morphed into Shad, S-H-A-D-D, and the family became a relatively prosperous free family of color and a respected part of Wilmington, Delaware's free black community. At the time, they would have been classified as mulattoes. And most of the family worked in skilled trades and skilled trades and made a pretty comfortable living. Mary Ann Camberton Shad was the oldest of Harriet and Abraham Shad's 13 children. She was born on October 9th of 1823. Her parents were abolitionists and were actively involved with the Underground Railroad. And Abraham was also active in organizations trying to improve the lives and legal protections of free black people, including being a delegate to the annual convention for the improvement of free people of color. When Marianne was born, slavery had really been on the wane in Delaware for a while. And during her early life, the vast majority of Delaware's black population was free. However, Delaware was still a slave state and uh, concerned that its sizable free black population would inspire a revolt among those who were still enslaved. This is why the state started passing a series of so-called black codes beginning not long after Marianne was born. These codes were increasingly strict and punitive, detailing where Delaware's black residents could congregate and be educated where and whether they could uh, vote or hold public office, that answer was no. It went on and on. Churches, schools, and public accommodations were segregated, and many predominantly white churches stopped allowing black members to attend. 
educational opportunities for black children were severely lacking, with the state not funding them and very few charities and social organizations being willing to do it either. This meant that Marianne's sex put her doubly at a disadvantage. There was one, quote, female African school in all of Delaware, which failed when she was about seven and didn't reopen again until she was out of her school age years. All of this together meant that in the decade or so after Marianne's birth, Delaware became an increasingly untenable place for the Shad family to be living. So in 1833, they moved to Westchester, Pennsylvania, which would later be home to recent podcast subject Bayard Rustin, with the hope of finding a more humane place to live and, according to the family lore, one in which there would be more educational opportunities for the family's children, particularly the daughter's. Pennsylvania was a free state and was, in some ways, definitely better for the family than Delaware had been. However, black people still couldn't vote and weren't represented in the government, and the state was still home to racial tensions and racial violence. For example, on August 12th through the 14th of 1834, a white mob destroyed businesses and at least 40 homes in one of Philadelphia's black neighborhoods, following an argument on the 11th at a carousel that led to the rumors that black residents had insulted white residents. Just to boil that down, a white mob destroyed a large part of a black neighborhood based on the rumor of insults, in case that was not quite clear enough. Marianne's father, Abraham, worked as a shoemaker after they got to Westchester until the family saved enough money to buy a small farm. He continued his work as an activist, and the family continued their work with the Underground Railroad. And although the records are kind of spotty, it does seem that Marianne was able to get an education through private Westchester schools. Pennsylvania did have state-supported public schools, but they were unofficially not open to black children. And all of this uh, primed to lead Marianne into the adult life that she would live. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to pause really quickly for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. To get back to Marianne Shad, as she was then, as we talked about before the break, she had spent her earliest years in Delaware watching the state's black community become subject to increasingly harsh black codes. She'd been raised by activist parents who wanted their children to be educated, but did not have very many schools available to them, especially when it came to their daughters. So once she got the education that her parents had worked so hard to secure for her, she used it to educate people where she thought it was needed most, which began back in Delaware. From there, she also went on to teach in Norristown, Pennsylvania and Trenton, New Jersey through the 1840s. Being a teacher at a school for black children was extraordinarily difficult during this time, whether the school was in a free state or a slave state. In general, either by custom or by specific law, state-funded schools were for white children only, and the states offered little to no funding for schools for black children. The charities running schools for black children were generally doing so on almost no money in places like church basements. Keeping schools for black children afloat required an extended network of mutual aid societies, small businesses, and charities all pulling together to keep them funded, staffed, and equipped. The teachers, most of whom were black women, worked for exceptionally low pay and virtually no job security. Schools ran out of money and closed down frequently, which was one of the reasons that Shad taught in so many different places. 
All of this was in addition to increasing levels of discrimination, segregation, and racist violence that grew in the wake of increasing numbers of free black people moving to the North. Nonetheless, she'd acquired about a decade of teaching experience by the time she wrote a letter to Frederick Douglass in January of 1849. He had asked for suggestions on how to make real positive changes in the lives of free black people living in the North. Shad's letter, which was published in Douglas's anti-slavery newspaper, The North Star, criticized free black activists, including herself, for spending too much time talking and debating at conventions and not enough time on effective action. We should do more, she wrote, and talk less. One of the things Shad would do for the next few years was teach. In 1851, she moved to New York City to teach at a school formed by the Society for the Promotion of Education among Colored Children. Not long after, she heard about a great North American anti-slavery convention to be held in Toronto, which she decided to attend. By this point, escaped slaves had established several communities in Canada, particularly along the border with the United States in Canada West, which is now Ontario. These communities had become sort of test cases for self-sufficiency and uplift strategies within the abolitionist movement. After discussing the challenges and issues that were faced both in the United States and in Canada, several of the delegates to this meeting came to the conclusion that immigration to Canada was the best way to ensure self-sufficiency and equality for the United States black population. There was still racism in Canada, but the theory was that it would be easier for black newcomers to Canada to achieve true equality uh, in that nation, which didn't have slavery and established discriminatory laws. So it's sort of this idea that, okay, we can move to Canada and kind of start fresh and have a better shot at true equality than we do in the United States. This was not a new idea at all. Various people and organizations, both black and white, and operating with a whole range of philosophies and goals, had been advocating the idea of resettling freed slaves for decades. Marianne's father, Abraham, had actually been an advocate against this idea, at the time largely focused on resettlement to Africa, during his years of activism before Marianne's birth and into her early life. There were definitely a lot of different motivations and points of view that people had for this idea of resettlement to Africa. There were there were uh, African-American leaders who were like, OK, we should move and we'll have a better chance there. And then there were also people that were working from a more like white nationalist point of view who were like, we should move the black people out of our country back to Africa. Like you can't boil down that whole uh that whole movement into just one perspective because there were a lot of different people working toward the same goal from vastly different points of view. Abraham, for example, felt that black people had a constitutional right to live full free lives in the United States. So he was against the idea of resettlement to Africa at all. Marianne, on the other hand, found the arguments that she heard at this 1851 meeting really appealing. And within days, she had decided to move to Canada to address one of the issues that had been brought up at this meeting that was facing Canada West's black communities. And that was a lack of opportunity for education. She moved to Windsor, just over the border from Michigan on the Detroit River, to open a school. 
And the school was housed in a barracks left over from the War of 1812. Shad was a huge believer in integration. She wanted to encourage integrated communities of equals rather than separate segregated cities and facilities for black residents. So she wanted her school to admit anybody that wanted to learn. Tuition was a shilling a week, but she promised not to turn away someone because they couldn't pay. This, however, proved to be an enormously difficult promise to keep. She very quickly found 25 students, but 20 of them were too poor to afford the tuition. And she was sure that there were lots of other potential students in Windsor who just couldn't afford to attend school at all because they needed basically to work, even though they were children, to to bring in the money for their family. So with the small number of students that she had that could pay their tuition, there just wasn't enough to make ends meet. Within months, Shad was living on charitable donations and money her family sent her from home. And she doubted her ability to keep the school heated in the oncoming Canadian winter. She finally applied to the American Missionary Association, which was hiring teachers for mission schools in Canada to ask for funds. After some reluctance on the AMA's part, she was finally granted $125 a year. That was half of what she said the school would need to stay running. And soon, her students numbered 23 children in the day and 10 adults at night. Once she was in Ontario, Shad proved herself to be a really contentious figure. In June of 1852, she published a pamphlet entitled A Plea for Immigration or Notes of Canada West in its moral, social, and political aspect, with suggestions respecting Mexico, West Indies, and Vancouver's Island for the information of colored immigrants. This was a 44-page document, primarily detailing information about Canada West's economy, politics, agriculture, and society. Notes of Canada West was Basically, promotional material, maybe even propaganda for the idea of immigration to Canada. It definitely hyped Canada's advantages and glossed over its downsides. This pamphlet exacerbated an already festering disagreement with Henry and Mary Bibb. Henry Bibb was one of Canada's most prominent black leaders. It was actually the Bibbs who had encouraged Shad to come to Windsor in the first place. Notes of Canada West set Shad up as the foremost authority on what life was like for black immigrants to Canada, which meant that Henry Bibb had been upstaged, and he had been upstaged by a woman. Shad and the Bibbs also fundamentally disagreed about how life for black immigrants should be supported in Canada. Henry Bibb ran a settlement organization called the Refugee Home Society, or RHS, which solicited donations of both money and goods and redistributed land. Shad thought of this as begging. She strongly believed that the black community needed to be self-sufficient and not rely on cast-off clothing and second-hand donations. And she also suspected mismanagement in the RHS's finances. Aside from their differences of opinion, Shad was direct and even aggressive when she criticized people and organizations. Sometimes her writing was flecked with sarcasm as well. So these disagreements blossomed into a full-blown feud. And this feud went on until the summer of 1852, when a cholera epidemic in Windsor drew people's attention to more urgent matters. However, even though it sort of was diverted from existing, this feud did have consequences for Shad. 
In its wake, the American Missionary Association voted not to fund her anymore once her contract was up at the school, citing that she had a lack of evangelical views. This was in spite of the fact that they uh, that they had just reviewed her work and called it, quote, full and satisfactory a month before. She wound up closing her school on March 23rd of 1853. The day after the school closed, the first issue of the Provincial Freeman, a newspaper Shad largely wrote, edited, and produced, was published. And we're going to talk about her new career as a newspaper editor, but first we are going to pause one more time for a word from one of the great sponsors that keeps us going. Story. When Marianne Shad learned her contract with the American Missionaries Association was not going to be renewed, she began working on a newspaper. She wanted a publication that could counter the viewpoints expressed in The Voice of the Fugitive, which the Bibbs were involved with. Apart from the fact that her disagreement with the Bibbs played out in part when uh, letters and columns published in The Voice of the Fugitive This newspaper also published editorials on women's role in the world. These were editorials that promoted the very Victorian view of women's domesticity. This was not a view that she agreed with at all. She enlisted the help of experienced newspaper editor Samuel Ringold Ward. However, Ward's name was mostly for the sake of name recognition and to shield the publication from sexism. His direct involvement was pretty minimal, though, since he lived in Toronto, which was more than 350 miles away. That first issue of the Provincial Freeman was something of a prototype, and it would be a while before there were regular issues that came out. Although one of her goals had been to publish opinions counter to those that were in the voice of the fugitive, this actually turned out to be unnecessary. That publication folded not long after all of its presses were destroyed in a fire in late 1853. The Provincial Freeman began regular publishing on March 25th of 1854, which was one year after the publication of that initial issue. It still listed some of the same names on the masthead in that new year later uh, issue, but Shad was still doing pretty much all the editorial work. Soon the paper was being published every Saturday, and it featured editorials written by Shad, articles picked up from other anti-slavery and religious publications, and local news and politics, in particular as was relevant to black residents of Canada. Among the topics it covered... Uh, the debate about mass immigration of black residents of the U.S. and whether it was better to stay in the U.S. and fight for equal rights there. Uh, the progress of the abolitionist movement in the United States and its failure to have achieved nationwide abolition. And the hypocrisy of legislators who adopted an anti-slavery platform because it was politically advantageous where they lived, not because they actually believed that slavery was evil. It also published a lot of work on women's rights. For this newspaper's entire existence, Shad would aggressively try to raise raise funds to keep it afloat. She actually went on a fundraising tour. This was the first of many. And it was at this point that she could no longer effectively hide the fact that she was the one who had been editing it behind the scenes this whole time. Apart from her being its public spokesperson on the tour, the number of unsigned editorials that the paper was publishing dropped really dramatically while she was away, and they were replaced by notes on her travel around Canada, which were under the byline M.A. Shad. 
It was not hard to put two and two together. <laughs> it's a very simple math on that one. Uh, in August of 1854, someone wrote a letter to Mr. M.A. Shad, which praised the newspaper and the ingenuity of the colored man who published it. At this point, Marianne, having grown increasingly frustrated that people didn't know that it was a woman running the paper, published a biting response under her own full name. She dropped the pretense of Samuel Ward's editorship and removed his name from the masthead on the October 28, 1854 issue. From this point, Shad increased her touring and speaking schedule to try to raise funds. And she gradually more, put more trust than other people to keep the paper running while she was away. One of these people was her sister, Amelia. Although Shad's father had been generally opposed to immigration of the black community out of the United States, after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, most of her family had gradually moved to Canada, primarily for their own safety. Several of her other siblings eventually worked on the paper as well. Shad resigned from editing the Provincial Freeman in June of 1855, believing that sexism was at the root of its failure to thrive. It had barely broken even in spite of her relentless fundraising. She also moved it to Chatham, which is between Lake Erie and Lake St. Clair, taking a three-month hiatus for the relocation and reestablishment of their offices. They weren't entirely welcome in Chatham, though. An existing paper in that part of Canada West, the Kent Advisor, published an editorial claiming that Chatham's black population had a hefty criminal element and that a black newspaper would probably promote lawlessness. The town itself was also racially very divided. Its population was about 25 percent black and churches and schools were segregated. And the local papers, as is evidenced by the thing I just said, had no qualms about publishing blatantly racist work. Not long after uh, Shad and her newspaper moved to Chatham, Shad was drawn into a dispute that shared a lot of similarities with her earlier dispute with the Refugee Home Society. A 1,500-acre settlement known as Dawn was home to a black community. But its leaders and the people administrating it, including British abolitionist John Scoble, had been suspected of mismanagement and extortion. Scoble and Shad had butted heads before, and they once again had a public dispute in which Shad wrote a series of letters in the paper. This dispute over who should have financial control over Dawn went on until the 1860s and ultimately ended in a lawsuit that allowed its black residents to take over controlling it themselves. In Chatham, Shad spent a lot of time investigating and reporting on suspected wrongdoing among Canada's abolitionist community. She uncovered corruption among aid organizations and ferreted out white abolitionists who had been putting funds raised for the cause to their own personal use. In October of 1855, she attended the Colored National Convention in Philadelphia as one of only two women present and the only one from Canada. She was admitted to the convention as a delegate after a vote of 38 to 23. Although Frederick Douglass and many of the other convention organizers were against mass immigration of the United States black community to other nations, Shad gave a really forceful speech in favor of relocation to Canada. Even though so many of the other delegates were really opposed to the message of her speech, a lot of people praised the speech itself and her speaking ability. And this led to several other speaking engagements while she was in Philadelphia. One of these was a debate on the subject of immigration in which Shad was declared the winner. 
On January 3rd of 1856, Mary Ann Shad married Thomas F. Carey in St. Catharines at the home of her sister, Amelia. He had three children from a previous marriage. Carey had been an early investor in Mary Ann's newspaper. They did not have a particularly conventional marriage. She continued to speak and to work as an activist and to raise money for the freemen, and the two of them never had a home together. It would actually be six months before Marianne Shad became Marianne Shad Carey in print. In late 1857, after the birth of Shad Carey's first child, the newspaper briefly stopped publishing new issues. It's not entirely clear when publication resumed because the issues weren't numbered and physical copies of them haven't survived until today. But the newspaper was not the only thing she was working on at this point. In April of 1858, John Brown visited Canada West to try to raise support for an armed slave insurrection he hoped to rally in North America. Shad Carey wasn't at the meeting of supporters he attended there. Women weren't allowed. But later on, William Wells Brown wrote that if she had been a man, she probably would have been with him at Harper's Ferry. I think John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry has come up in enough episodes. (laughs) (laughs) We probably should do one on it. Marianne Shad Carey's last existing editorial in the Provincial Freeman ran on June 18, 1859. In it, she spoke out against the rise in, quote, Negro haters in Canada West. The last issue of the paper came out within a few months after that. Shad Carey's husband died on November 29, 1860, at which point she was pregnant with their second child. Although Shad Carey had never stopped working during their marriage, her income wasn't enough to look after herself and her children. She wound up having to get support from her family to make ends meet, and she went back to teaching at a school so underfunded that she eventually had to ask the Refugee Home Society for funding. That name rings a bell. It's because that was the uh, <laughs> one of the organizations she had such a public feud with. I can only... She seems like such a... An exacting and proud person. I can only imagine how desperate her circumstances must have been to go to an organization whose views she disagreed with so vehemently to ask them for help. The Civil War started not long after, and that sparked fears that the United States would try to annex Canada or that the South would win the war and escaped slaves in Canada would be extradited back there. Within Canada, the racial climate was becoming increasingly hostile as well as the black population increased. The Canadian government had originally really encouraged escaping slaves to come to Canada. They had offered assistance through things like land grants as well. But as more and more enslaved people and free black people left the United States for Canada, that really started to change. There was this increasing amount of not-in-my-backyard style opposition to attempts to settle in various parts of Canada. In the face of all of this, Shad Carey eased back on her opposition to immigration to Africa and asked the American Missionary Association if she might get a missionary appointment in Africa. That was denied. In December of 1863, she became a recruiter for the Union Army. She began that in Chatham before going to Indiana to continue the effort there, as well as to help escaping slaves get to Canada. Once the war was over and slavery was abolished in the United States, a lot of previous black immigrants to Canada decided to return back home. This was eventually true of several people from the Shad family as well. 
Shad Carey eventually closed her school and several of her family moved back to the United States. She was really reluctant to follow them, though, and was actually issued a Canadian passport in 1865. She finally returned to the United States after the passage of the 14th Amendment, which she saw as a commitment to the Reconstruction-era policies that were intended to secure real equality for the black population of the United States. As you know, if you have listened to our podcast on Robert Smalls, that is not how that played out. Shad Carey moved to Detroit, where she became a teacher and, for the first time, got a job at a public city school that she did not have to fund through her own efforts. She became active in local politics, and she began to advocate more strongly for labor rights and the rights of women. Women's rights would be a primary focus for the rest of her life. She eventually moved to Washington, D.C., Throughout Reconstruction, she continued to speak and write on all the various causes she was advocating. And then she joined the first law class at Howard Law School in 1869. This is a two-year program, and if she had finished it in two years, she would have been the first woman to become an attorney in the United States. She didn't wind up graduating with her class for reasons that aren't entirely clear, although there is some suggestion that it might have been because it was questionably legal for a woman to be practicing law. She finally finished her law degree in 1883 at the age of 60, making her only the second black woman in the United States to become an attorney. In between, she joined the suffrage movement, including trying to register to vote in the spring of 1871, even though it was not legal for her to do so. And for the rest of her life, she continually spoke, wrote, and advocated for equal rights for black people and for women, slowing down only in the last 10 years of her life. She died of stomach cancer on June 5th, 1893, at the age of 69. Frederick Douglass praised her as having, quote, unconquerable zeal and commendable ability. But he also said, quote, the tone of her paper has been at times harsh and complaining. That comes up again and again. Like all all of these biographical sources have commentary on her her manner of writing and and speaking that boils down to like why does she have to be so shrill and number one that's a really gendered complaint that uh, a lot of the same people writing about it are like this probably she would not have earned this criticism if she had been a man but then when i went and read a lot of uh, of pieces from the provincial freeman that still exist that you can read online well, i tried to pick ones that seemed like she would be the maddest <laughs> Like, which ones would she really be head up about and, and like, say whatever things were making people say, wow, she sure is just cranky in her writing. And I, like, I don't see it. So I think definitely uh, when, you, when you read descriptions of her as being, like, a shrill, complainy person, a lot of that does seem to boil down to the fact that she was a woman while saying these things, because had the same things been said by a man, I don't think they would have raised nearly as much comment about their tone. And now I have the listener mail that inspired this episode. This is, as we said, from Derek, and Derek says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I just finished listening to your fantastic double episode about Harriet Tubman, and I was thinking about the narrative of Canada as a sanctuary for escaped or even emancipated slaves. I am Canadian and am a victim of a lot of aggrandizing narratives about my country, which, while painting us in a very kind light, are problematic in terms of how we think of our identity. 
For example, because of the fact that we talk about ourselves as the terminus of the Underground Railroad, we tend to absolve ourselves of the same racist history as the United States. In short, our cultural narrative places racism as a United States problem. This, I feel, is dangerous, in addition to being historically inaccurate. As such, I was wondering if you would be willing to explore Canada's role in the Underground Railroad and black immigration. Mary Ann Shad, for example, if she was mentioned at all in history classes, has the narrative of moving to Canada, starting the Provincial Freeman, opening an integrated school, and fighting for assimilation. Well, this is a great narrative. It actually ignores the fact that Shad, like many other African-American immigrants, experienced a tremendous amount of racism in Canada. Shad documented this very well, and is this an interesting figure? I should say that I remember reading this as a Canadian anthology of literature in university. Cannot actually find examples of the racism that she experienced, but I think it's worth investigation. I really do love being Canadian, so I don't say this to be defamatory. I'm a teacher who specializes in English language arts and social studies, and thus believe that complicating a national narrative is the way that society can progress. I also understand that you are an American podcast and that Canadian content, CanCon as we call it here, is something that is not necessarily a concern for you as it is here. However, I think that it ties into and complicates the story of abolition and is often missed in Canadian history. Thank you for reading and sorry about using the word narrative so much. And thank you for your podcast. I've learned from it. I've learned a lot from it. Derek, thank you so much, Derek. I, mean, I just, this is, letter is great for so many reasons. Like number one, uh, I literally never considered that ever. Like me either. And my, never crossed right, my mind. My, not at all. Uh, and so number one, having somebody point out a thing that had never crossed either of our minds. Uh, is re- always really interesting um, because like like Derek said, you and I are both American and we have both grown up with this narrative of the Underground Railroad as a place where people wound up in Canada and everything was better and that like better, sure, relatively speaking, probably better than being enslaved, but definitely still a lot of racism present. And then Marianne Shad Carey herself is just an incredibly complicated person. I feel like, as I often say, we've only kind of scratched the surface here. Um, there was a lot of disagreement within the time about, like, what was the best way for free black people and people who had either been emancipated or emancipated themselves? Like, what was the best way to secure equality and secure uh, the the best life for people? And, like, there was just a lot of disagreement within like the black community and within the white abolitionist community and then also within like the racist community that was more of a like let's just make everybody move to Africa to get them out of our faces like that really was a driving thought among people Uh, and a lot of the things she was advocating ruffled a lot of feathers for sure so if you would like to learn more about her I strongly recommend the book Marianne Shad Carey The Black Press and Protest in the 19th Century by Jane Rhodes it gets into a lot more detail about uh, things that we didn't really touch on, various um, beliefs that she held that, you know, some of which people would totally get behind today and others people would be like, I'm not sure I can support that idea. But uh, she was a really interesting and complicated person who was living in a really interesting and complicated time that in a lot of ways we tend to oversimplify when we're talking about in history. So thank you again, Derek. That's like... The great email. That's a great example of a great email. I literally stopped what I was doing and forwarded it to Holly 
who had already read it, to say, I guess I know what I'm talking about next. <laughs> uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. Our Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History, And our Instagram is MissedInHistory. We try to keep all the names as consistent as possible for the ease of finding us in all the places. If you would like to learn more about what we have talked about today, you can come to our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and you can put the word Underground Railroad in the search bar and find an article on how the Underground Railroad works or worked. Uh, you can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes for every episode that Holly and I have ever worked on. You will find an archive of every episode we have ever done. You will find uh, all the details about the book that I just referenced and where you can learn more about it. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs> <laughs>